Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, everyone. Uh, another edition of The other hand, uh, with Nathan Johns, Irish Times journalist. This is the second one we've done with him. We did one at the beginning of the Six Nations series, and we are reaching the concluding weekend, and we're going to talk a lot about the rugby, particularly Ireland's chances. But I want to start by asking him about his impressions of where he is right now as we're speaking. He's sitting in a what looks like a nice hotel room in Cheltenham, having attended the races this week. What have you made of your first Cheltenham week, Nathan? Well, it, attended and is, is makes it sound like I'm on a jolly. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm here working. I'm, I'm covering the the races. The more, not so much the sport, more the human interests, newsy color type um, aspect. And yeah, it's interesting. I and I suspect the my experience of working rather than than, than punting, so to speak is i suspect they're very different experiences um i'm in a tent down the back of the race course all day running to watch races when i can and then running to, to per, winning winning enclosures to interview jockeys and and uh and trainers afterwards so i'm surrounded by people who are very invested in the racing and it's all about nothing but the racing and and, and what goes on on the track and everything that goes on off the track the the drinking and all the other aspects that everyone associates with the day of the races I, i'm not necessarily involved in so i haven't had the the punters experience or the mad side of of cheltenham so to speak um so it's been good i mean i, I i'm not necessarily a racing buff i'm not there as a sports journalist i'm there as a news journalist so it's different but um it, it is interesting being surrounded by the biggest names in the sport you know your willie mullins henry de bromheads um gordon elliott's those guys and, and seeing a lot of 
famous horses and people involved with them. So it's 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 certainly been an interesting experience. It's a big week for the Irish. I remember when I first lived in Ireland, when people were off to Cheltenham at the various ferry ports and the airport, there were customs agents stationed checking on people, uh, making sure they weren't carrying too much cash. It was the days when there were actual physical controls or limits on how much money you could take out of the country. Thankfully, those days are long gone. But is it, I assume it's still a big money, big betting arena. Yeah, definitely. It's actually interesting. One of the stories I did was a feature on uh, the bookies, you know, the old fashioned trackside guys. So not your Paddy Powers, uh, Bet 365s, the, you know, the, the guys who, who lug, the, lug the board and, you know, they're standing the satchel. And the big satchel. It used, it, back in the day, it used to be a big satchel and a chalkboard. It's all gone digital now, I think. Yeah, it's, it? it's it's a big it's a big digital board with the odds on the board, exactly. Yeah, and and the, and the machine printing off your your slips, etc. Um, but of course, those guys are more small. All of those guys at one point in time would have had shops, but of course, bookie shops are dying. And you, you might see a Ladbrokes on the side of the street now, but you don't see a you don't see a John Mulholland bookmakers anymore. But you'll see those guys at the track. But anyway, the story was I can only find two. From Ireland, really? Um, which, yeah, that seems mad, doesn't it? I would have assumed loads of them travel over, and uh, apparently they did. But gambling regulations in England are, are tighter; it's harder to get li- and more expensive um, to get licenses. So a lot of these smaller bookmakers don't bother anymore. So that's been quite interesting. There's a lot of money changing hands, but not necessarily with with Irish bookmakers on the track. So I thought that was. And that is was it fun. cash or are people using Apple Pay? Again, funny you should say that both because Cheltenham is cashless apart from the the, the bookies. So you can't you can't buy your pint with cash, but you can um, you can't pay the bookie. You can put your twenty quid on or whatever it is with with cash. And the bookies obviously prefer cash because it's quicker, it's more efficient because they're just trawling through bets, you know, hundreds of hundreds of bets in, in between races. So the cash is easier for them. So that a lot of them actually bitch and moan about the fact that loads of people try and pay card because it takes time and it's inefficient um but they have to because the rest of the the race course is cashless and it's funny you say that the, the people with customs actually one of the defining images for me was when i got off the plane in birmingham i'm standing there waiting on my bus and i just see this this guy pull out a wad he obviously just been to the bank or currency exchange or whatever he was irish and he just pulled out of his back pocket a massive wad of 20s and i just don't think i've ever seen as much physical cash in my life uh, yeah <laughs> Back in the day, uh, it wasn't digital. It was uh, a guy with a chalkboard, not a digital board, marking up the odds of the of the horses. There was a guy standing behind, sitting behind him with a book, which is why they were called bookmakers back in the day, in which when somebody put their 20 quid on, the guy standing at the board would give you a ticket, nothing written on it. It just had a unique number. And that number was then recorded by the bookmaker in his book. The odds were quoted and were fixed. Um, the odds that he gave you at that moment were fixed. And then if there was weight of money going one direction or the other, they would communicate using hand signals to other bookies, laying off bets, receiving bets, and then the odds would start to change. So it, it's completely different. You can't imagine how, how different it is today compared to back in the day. But I'm glad that it's it's still going. It's been a very successful week, I think, all round. It's certainly been well attended, hasn't it? Yeah, not as well attended as last year. Last year was the post-COVID everyone going mad and go to Cheltenham, but it's still reasonably well attended. They've also capped the numbers they let in because I think last year was just too busy and the flow of crowd, the crowd around the course was maybe not unsafe, but it was certainly difficult, I think. So they've, it's, they've, they're deliberately not letting in as many people. Has it been enough of experience that you would go back? 
I'm not, I'm not a horse racing fan. I, I don't bet. So I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go, I certainly wouldn't go for all four days. Um, I, I'd, I'd work it again because there's different angles you can, you can do and find different interesting ways of doing it. I don't know if I'd go as a, as a punter. Okay. Enough of horse racing. Um, I know that you've also been busy this week with a few uh, news items about cricket and you ran something last night called a Twitter space. First of all, tell me what, because this is new to me, what a Twitter space is. It's essentially live call-in radio through the medium of Twitter. Or a live podcast, perhaps? Is, is that the no, other call, way? Call in, well, podcast in the sense that you can listen back to it at a later, at a later date. But the crucial aspect is that listeners can call in and contribute. So hence, hence I made that, I made that reference. Um, you create so a space. What's the, new, what's the news from Irish cricket then? What were you talking about in this, twi- this live radio via Twitter thing? Oh, they're, they're after they're playing in Bangladesh. Um, there's, they're That's off. a big deal, isn't it? Well, yeah, they got, yeah, they, they got it. They're playing test cricket again, the longest format, which they haven't played since 2019 because of COVID and, and finances. So yeah, that what was, that was one of the chances. Oh, they get whacked. They got absolutely smashed over there. Yeah. They're, really? they're completely decimated by injuries and the conditions are the hardest to play in, in the world for, for non-Asian uh, cricketers, so and they haven't played there in years. Um, and like I said, they're decimated by injuries, so they'll get absolutely spanked. But we will wish them well and wish them well. Of course. Well. Yes, yeah. of course. Right. It's potentially a Grand Slam weekend for Irish rugby, so a big deal. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about how we've got here, and in particular that crazy match um, last weekend against Scotland. Um, your thoughts on that would be much appreciated. Uh, your thoughts on the French, um, that performance that they put in over the weekend was also an incredible one. Um, and on mature reflection, we must have done very well to have beaten them when we did, um, to be in with that chance of the Grand Slam. But I'll start by reminding you and our listeners that it was 10 years ago, almost exactly to the day. It was March the 16th, 2000 and, sorry, 20 years, 2013. 20, yeah, 10 years ago to the day, where England, having won their won handsomely and easily their previous four games in the Six Nations, uh, turned up with somebody called Lancaster as their coach, uh, turned up in Cardiff for the last game of the season. And according to all the pundits, all the form, all the bookies, all they had to do was turn up and the Grand Slam was theirs. They were hot favourites. Might remind you of the weekend coming up um, for the Irish uh, odds, if you like, and Wales absolutely smashed them. I was in the ground. I watched the game. The atmosphere was absolutely incredible. The, you know, the old enemy had turned up just to win the Grand Slam, and they thought it was theirs. And we beat them. The Welsh beat them thirty points to three. Um, really gave them a good working over, and um, it was it was really the beginning of the end for Lancaster, I think, in, in many ways. Uh, but it serves as a reminder that hot favourites don't always win. And I think it was the 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 French defence coach. He's English. What's his name? Sean Edwards. Sean Edwards said last week that winning a Grand Slam is harder than winning a World Cup. Would you agree with that? The reason why he said that is because in a World Cup draw, because the draw for the group pool stages are made two and a half years out from the World Cup, and they're based on the world rankings at that point. If the world rankings change you can get a really easy draw to get through to a semi-final or a final of a World Cup. Like if you look at England, England are really struggling at the minute, but they're, they've got Wales and Australia on their side of the draw, on their way on the, of the World Cup, that is, next year, to get to a semi-final. Whereas Ireland, Scotland, Ireland, Scotland and France are the three of the form teams in world rugby at the minute. 
and they're Ireland and Scotland are in the same pool. South Africa is in that pool, and then New Zealand and France are in another pool, and they're all on the same side of the draw. Those two pools meet in a quarter final. So, just to reiterate, it's England, Australia, Wales on one side, and on the other, it's Scotland, Ireland, South Africa, New Zealand, France. So there's obviously a flaw in the system. They need that, to. That sounds like a dreadful system to me. So the reason the reason why they do it is because so fans know well in advance what pool they're in and where the games are going to be, so they can book travel. That's why. If they had any sense competitively, they'd do it now. They'd do the draw for the World Cup now, after the Six Nations, when the rankings are the most relevant possible, and therefore you've got the better teams playing against weaker teams, and you get reward for being a higher ranked team. So Ireland is number one in the world. Would get an easier group, they'd probably get someone like Wales in their group, you know. Um, so that's why he said it, because you can, in theory, get very lucky. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I mean, Wales have won more Grand Slams than they have World Cups, and he was spent a long time as Welsh defence coach, so I'm sure he would say it was easier to win a Grand Slam than a World Cup. And, and statistically, I mean, just from a pure basic mathematics point of view, it is harder to win a World Cup because they just don't happen as often. Um, so I think he's he was being a little bit hyperbolic, but I can certainly see he was making that point, bitching against the World Cup ranking system, because as France's defence coach, he's got the second best team in the world, but the hardest draw um, to get to a, a final. So there is a huge gap between the two sides of the draw in the way that you described it there. And we've watched the Six Nations this year, and it seems that Ireland, France and Scotland are, as you say, the form teams um, in that order. If you're Irish, you certainly put them in that order. Um, the Scots might have a view on that. Um, but the rest, England in particular, we know we discussed Wales last time and why they have been so disappointing. England, with all of their rugby resources, that old cliche that everybody always trots out, you know, the size of the country, the rugby resources, the pool of players that they potentially can pick from, um, are going backwards again. Why is that? Oh, God, how long have you got? It's as always with these things, there's hundreds of different factors. The main one is that the joined up thinking between club and international, just it's just it's not there. English rugby has to have clubs, town, town based clubs, your Leicester's, your well, Wasps were London, obviously not anymore. Those types of institutions, because they are their institutions, their towns, Gloucester, Bath, that type of thing. So they can't have a regional provincial system like Ireland has. So they can't pool talent in the same way because they wouldn't have the support, it wouldn't make any money. But the result of the club system, individual towns, that's led to private owners because there's a lot of them, because there's a lot of towns. There's not that many regions, but there's a lot of towns. Uh, So the RFU, the Rugby Football Union, doesn't own them. So they have no control over them. They have no control over players um, when they go back to their clubs, really. And as a result, there's no joined up thinking. There's none of the, you know... Ireland aren't better than England because they move players around the provinces, but it, it's certainly a factor. Um, and generally, just the, the Rugby Football Union is a bit of a basket case. They have let two professional clubs go under financially. That has happened on their watch because they kind of just let them because they abdicated responsibility because they don't own them, whereas the provinces are owned by the Irish Rugby Football Union. So the lack of joined up thinking, uh, the quality of the domestic premiership in England is something that a lot of people talk about. It's kind of like what people used to say about Super Rugby a few years ago, where it was just all fast attacking rugby that wasn't reminiscent of Test Match Rugby. Now, attacking rugby is much more prominent in Test Match internationals these days than it was. But at the same time, the defensive structures that are in play at club rugby in England are nowhere near reminiscent of what's found at international level, bar one or two teams like Leicester and Saracens. And that has that, that has a factor. You've got guys doing things that are much more alien to them, whereas how many times do you hear people say, in attack and defence, Ireland do what Leinster do. And again, that's a bit of a hyperbole exaggeration, but there's a, there's a kernel of truth in that. 
So it's joined up thinking across the board. Quality of rugby domestically doesn't necessarily prepare players the best way it does. And, and equally then just the current players. I, I've, I've said this for a while about England. England are fantastic when they're on the front foot and they're playing well, as every single team in the world is. But I've always said this about England teams, and especially with England teams in the Owen Farrell era. And I don't necessarily think it's his fault because I think he's a good player. A marker of his time, whether it's his fault or not, is that when you punch England in the mouth, they don't, they've never had a plan B. And I've said, even when Eddie Jones was coach, whereas you look at Ireland, and I'm sure you're going to touch on this later, but half their pack gets injured in 20 minutes. They've got no one to hook, no one to throw the ball to the line out, and they still be arguably the third best country in the world at the minute. So you can punch Ireland a number of times and they adapt. England, historically, for 10 years now, have not been a good side at adapting. And that's coaching, though, isn't it? That's failing to prepare. That's mental coaching, which is, I think, the biggest thing that's different about Ireland this time around. Um, the Joe, Joe Schmidt revolutionised Irish rugby, and you need to be careful because anytime you praise Andy Farrell, the implication is you're insulting or denigrating the work that Joe Schmidt did in the previous cycle. But there's a famous line when a sports psychologist by the name of Andy Enda McNulty, who was working with the Irish team with, under the Joe Schmidt era, said, you know, Joe, you can't be emailing me at 2 a.m. asking me to prep sessions. You can't be expecting me to meet you late at night. The players have asked for time off, and when time off was given to respect it, all these things, because Joe Schmidt was notoriously a, a micromanager and a details man to the point where he didn't sleep and therefore he expected other people to not. When McNulty, the sports psychologist, confronted him on this and said the players are stressed, apparently the famous line is Schmidt said, good, we're creating the, the best high-performance environment in the world. It's supposed to be stressful. Whereas Farrell has taken the complete opposite approach where nothing possibly can stress him ever. Again, today in a press conference, there was a great line. Someone asked him, he said, how much of Ireland got to lose this weekend? And he said, nothing, it's a game of rugby. He just, he's got that balance of we work bloody hard and we do our detail and we do our analysis and we do everything that Schmidt did, but at the same time, nothing phases us. We relish challenges instead of like when, when they had last minute injuries against Wales to start the Six Nations in a game that people thought was a banana skin, people were panicking, but Andy Farrell said he told the side to relish it. And again, last week against Scotland, he said they were all laughing in the changing room because they were just, that's all they could do. That's at half time. At half time, that's how ridiculous the situ injury situation was that they had a hooker with one shoulder hanging off. And, and so, yeah, so it's, it's the mental side of it. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. My only Joe Schmidt anecdote that I've got, I didn't actually meet him on the day, but he was present at a charity thing that I attended years ago, obviously, at the Aviva and there was a charity auction and it was a lunch 
and when all the formal formalities were over and a bit of money has been raised, the uh, a few players, a few Irish players, players of the day were mingling with um, people like me and having a chat. And there was the usual chicken curry lunch. And I won't name the player I was chatting to at the time, but I asked him, are you not going to have any lu- any of the chicken curry? And he said, I'm waiting for Joe to leave because if he saw me eating chicken curry, he'd kill me. The, player, the players were shit scared of Schmidt. They had a lot of time for him and they respected him. And people like Sexton, who Sexton is, a, is the same. He's a micromanager. He's reputation for roaring his head off at players. If you give the pass too high to him, he'll shout at you. To the point where Farrell has actually Farrell's motto is he, he's 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 encouraging the players to be themselves, apart from Sexton, John, because because Sexton is kind of a similar mold, but but Sexton is bought into that and and respects the desire to to empower players and it's 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 remarkable in high performance sport how few people understand that if you have players having fun and enjoying themselves, they'll think for themselves better and they'll respond to his adversity better. Whereas if you have micromanaged players who could be very talented and the man micromanaging you're doing is very effective as it was in the Schmidt era. Ireland won three, six nations, including a grand slam under Schmidt. Let's, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here, so to speak. But what they didn't respond well to adversity, the famous example being 2015 world cup last pool game against France to qualify to top the group. Ireland beat them. Sexton injured O'Connell hamstring torn off the bone. Sean O'Brien uh, suspended. And there was one or two others. I think Peter O'Mahony might've also got injured. And then the next game with Madigan at 10 and half the pack injured, Argentina blew them out of the water because Ireland had Whereas if Ireland had five or six injuries like they did last weekend against Scotland, nowadays you're going, yeah, they're going to be fine. It's almost a case of there's an air of invincibility that doesn't matter who they plug into that system now, they'll do well. Now that's not going to happen. And there will come a day when injuries cause them to lose a match. If that game is against France last week, for example, they probably lose that match. Um, but they won't lose it because of panic or a lack of ability to adapt. And I think that's the biggest difference um, between between Farrell and Schmidt, and, it, and it, it really shows. England has changed their fly half again. Is that just symptomatic of this malaise that we're talking about, that um, they, they can't even settle on uh, arguably the key position for, for the 15? They really want Marcus Smith to be the guy because, like I said, international rugby in the last year or so has become much more conducive to running, attacking rugby. And he plays that style with Harlequins really well. The England attack coach, temporary attack coach, is the Harlequins attack coach. There's that relationship there. Um, But England, the problem is England haven't earned the right to play that sort of rugby. Um, The days of England rolling over teams up front have disappeared, despite this being, by and large, the same England team that two years ago rolled over Ireland at will, um, physically. And of course, you need to do that to earn earn the right to to have those kind of mercurial talents at out half who can run teams out, out off the park. Um, they looked better when Owen Farrell came on against France for about three minutes. They played some really nice attacking rugby and scored a try. Obviously, then France dominated for the next half an hour or however long was left. Um, but interestingly, that was with two out halves on the pitch. They obviously haven't gone that route. Smith is completely gone. Well, he's he's, he's not. He's, he's on the he's bench. on the bench, isn't he? Yeah, he's on the bench. Um, so. Whether we'll find out whether it was Smith was the problem or was it that they didn't have enough distributors in that backline because once again they okay yes they've gone to Farrell but it's the same amount of um, distributing talent so to speak. You mentioned Plan Bs or indeed Plan Cs in the case of Ireland last weekend. Do you know if Josh Josh Van der Fleer has ever thrown into a line out before or or perhaps more pertinently, do you think that? At some point in training, he has practiced throwing into a line-out. 
yeah, sure. sure yeah, they, all the players were talking about it after the game. Um, they said, actually, like, I think I can't remember who it was, but someone said at Leinster trainings, they used to get out to him for doing it because he would take up time or take up space when other players needed it or what, whatever it was. I can't remember exactly, but to the point where they were like, why the hell is he doing this? And, well, days like days like last Sunday, evidently. But yeah, he um, he did practice a lot. Now, that's not mental. That's just actual physical training. That's prepare, preparation in training, isn't it? For, for plan B or plan, as I say, plan C. But quite crucially, he didn't, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast or not. He didn't shit himself in front of 75,000 people at Murrayfield. Um, as you know, you can be the best at anything in the world, but if when pushing when when that, in that environment you have you, you can't don't have the mental resilience to, to execute, it doesn't matter. So there yes, he could be the mentally strong, you know, he could be the the mentally strongest man in the world, but if he doesn't know how to throw a line out, he's he's still screwed. Um, when you so, saw those forwards in particular going off so early on in the game, and I'm thinking Doris in particular, but not just Doris, were you worried? Yeah, of course. Doris Henderson, Sheehan, and then Kelleher came out, Kelleher got injured, had treatment on a shoulder. Ireland did a line out five metres on the Scottish line just before half time. And he throws it and it's 20 yards over the man's head and you're going, right, shoulder injury. And then he, the throw goes goes wrong. That's wrong. That's bad because that indicates there's a power issue in the shoulder. Um, and then in the second half, he comes back out and he makes a tackle. And I think he, was, he made a tackle with his right shoulder and the left shoulder was just hanging down make no attempts to get involved and you, you you're looking at that going he can't he can't use his shoulder and um, so how how on earth he's supposed to scrum line out and that like, they hit people and um, they were only keeping on the park hoping he could throw and they very quick i think they pretty like i think they the coaches also saw that collision where one shoulder was just non-existent and they said right just just get him off we have to make do and of course of course you're worried um th- that's ha- rugby these days is 30 percent about impact off the bench and changing games, as we know, especially in international games that tend to be tighter. So once that impact goes, like Ryan Baird is a fantastic player, but he's been playing well recently off the bench as an impact player for 20 minutes. He's not doing that. He's playing for an hour now, so he's not going to have the same impetus. Um, so, of course, you're worried, and you're worried that one more injury and everything goes to pot. But I think, you know, we, we should never question anything ever again with this Irish side, evidently. Mm, indeed. Okay, let's start thinking about the game. I talked, the, the upcoming game, I talked about uh, complacency. And one of the first interviews given after that last weekend's victory was um, somebody, and then suddenly everybody saying, oh yeah, that's the worst possible England result for Ireland next week because they'll come pumped up and everybody was trying to talk England up. What, what do you think? What, what, what result are you expecting on Saturday? Oh, I, I, know, know. I know what you want. But what are you expecting? An, an Irish victory again. I, I honestly, the the flip side of of the mental preparation in that Irish side being so good, is that they almost they, they there won't be a need to say to those lads we have to take England seriously. Um, there's these guys are intelligent human beings and they're being treated as such with a lack of prescription around a lot of information and there's enough leaders in that group that are going to make sure that they train their arses off this week and England could come and do what they did in 2019 when they kind of dropped a few bombs in the Aviva and Ireland couldn't respond and they could easily do that to start the game and Tulagi's playing and I don't know, he's not the Tulagi of old but if he sums it up, can, can bring something together and make a game line early in the game and, and, and do what he's done against Ireland so many times and England get an early lead, Ireland, not that they won't care but They'll, they'll they'll respond. They won't 
the thing is with an Irish side like this, they're so good at dealing with adversity. They will always be competitive, even when they're not playing well, which we kind of saw a little bit last weekend as well, as much as they did play well in the second half. So even if England play out of their skins and come incredibly pumped up, they've got their physical edge back. They start running over players like they did in the old days, well, old days, two, three years ago. Ireland will make a few adjustments, they'll recover and, and they'll be competitive. And because of that, their quality will, will show through. They're higher, they're superior quality to England. Doris is the breakthrough Irish player of the season? Would that no, not, break, not breakthrough. He's been doing this ever since, uh, when, when was it? I'm going to say 2018 Champions Cup. I can remember watching him away in Northampton, just dominating. He's been doing uh, it for Leinster. I'm talking about Ireland. Uh, no, he's the last year. I mean, he made his debut 2021 against Scotland and he got knocked out five minutes in and didn't play again for the rest of Six Nations. And then after that Six Nations, Jack Conan went on the Lions tour and started on the Lions tour. And everybody in Leinster and Ireland knew that Caelan Doris was a better player than Jack Conan. And if, if Doris doesn't get knocked out five minutes into his Ireland debut and plays that Six Nations, he probably goes on the Lions tour and starts on the Lions tour in 2021 instead of Jack Conan. Um, it's yeah it's i i always find these these conversations frustrating because i listen to an english rugby podcast where they're waxing lyrical about doris and it's almost as if these people just you you get angry at these people because you're saying he's been doing this for ages he's, he's you know this is this is his best six nations for ireland and it's that, that's know, kind of what i meant yeah and, and in a sense it's his, it's his first real sort of ability uh first six nations where he's been able to play in most games uh, he, played, most- he played most games last year as well um he with the it's same very, impact? It's, sorry? With the same impact? I, I think mm, it's it's so hard to quantify, but I've I've never not watched a game when he's playing and not being incredibly impressed with them. Put it this way, it's the first time I'm hearing people from outside our, 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 the Irish echo chamber uh, talking about him as a, as a world-class player. And I almost get angry at them. I'm like, how dare you? You, you know, It's your fault you don't watch enough rugby that you didn't know about him, um, which, of course, is a ridiculous position to have. But... Um, uh, yeah, okay, you can call it a breakout. I wouldn't call it go so far as a breakout because he's played really high-level international rugby plenty of times. It's his best Six Nations campaign, for sure. Okay, um, all right, I'm going to finish up now. And just, we started talking about Cheltenham and horse racing, which, of course, involves an awful lot of betting. If you were a bookie, and I know you're not, if you were a gambler, and I know you're not, what point spread would you make me for the game? I wouldn't. I saw somewhere that it's, someone has a thirty-point spread. That's no, ludic- that's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. I'd go ten to fifteen. Okay, that wide. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think. Honestly, you know what? There is a situation where you, it could be higher if if Ireland start well and England are behind the eight ball. With what's going on with them, they could capitulate. Um, I don't think so. I think it'll be reasonably tight for twenty minutes, half an hour, and Ireland will pull away and. Ireland will get a bonus point win and they'll win win by 15 points. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Nathan, thanks very much for your time. I know you're a very busy man and you've got other things to do in Cheltenham, so I appreciate it. And I hope everybody enjoys the game on Saturday and gets the right result. So thanks very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it.
Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 